Good evening and welcome to Spirit Radio. I am your host, Willie Hassel. Along with my co-host, Lynn Nickerson, we will take you on a journey, a journey into the unknown where the paranormal becomes the normal. A journey to a world cloaked in darkness where reality becomes a thin veil. So sit back, relax, and join us as we venture into the shadows, the darkness, the unknown, and back. You are listening to Spirit Radio, The Paranormal Experience, with your hosts, Willie Hassel and Lynn Nickerson, on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. So, good evening, and welcome again to Spirit Radio, The Paranormal Experience. I'm Willie Hassel, along with the lovely the mystical, the mysterious, Lynn Nickerson. Hey, good evening. How are you? Hey, Willie. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good for an old guy. Ah, don't tell me that. I'm doing pretty I good heard for you... a young guy, too. <laughs> I heard you went out walking today. I was out in the woods. I, uh, it was a beautiful day, a crisp, cold yeah, uh, it was. November day out in the woods here in New Hampshire. But I did not see any Bigfoot. No, did you hear anything? I didn't hear anything either. Well, I'm sure you will. I, 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 <laughs> guess, I guess we're just not in Bigfoot company, uh, country. <laughs> I know but somebody who is, though. I do, too. And uh, that brings us to tonight on Spirit Radio, the paranormal experience. We welcome back to the show... Mary Joyce. Mary is the editor of the website Skyships Over Caches, a site that covers all aspects of the paranormal. She has also worked on several major newspapers, such as the Orlando Sentinel in Orlando, Florida, as an artist and columnist, and the Oakland Press in Michigan as Sunday Magazine editor and feature editor. She has also worked at a Fortune 500 company where she worked directly with many creative teams, including those at Marvel Comics, Golden Books, Mr. Rogers, and Steven Spielberg's E.T. Bookstaff. Mary has appeared on many radio shows and television shows, and on the, such as shows on the Travel Channel, as well as internet TV shows in Ireland and Australia. She is the author of four books, with her latest being Bigfoot Beyond the Footprints. Welcome to Spirit Radio, Mary Joyce. Good evening, Mary. Hi, it's good to hear the voices of both of you. <laughs> Hi, Mary. And Same here. Nice to hear you, too. So you've just uh, attended, or rather you did some presentations at a couple of conferences lately? I did. Uh, over... Um, Columbus Day weekend, when everybody was uh, going into Gatlinburg for leaves and everything else, they had a convention. It was called uh, Creatures, Legends, and Lore. And mm -hmm. I, I did a, a major photo presentation um, about Bigfoot. And, of course, the subject of my most recent book, which just came out at the end of September, uh, is called Bigfoot Beyond the Footprints. I really, really wanted to get the message out there to people that there's so much more to Bigfoot than the things we hear about. We hear about the, the castings of the footprints. We hear about them banging on trees and, you know, howling at people. Um, but there's <laughs> a lot more to them. They have uh, families. Uh, they've made friends with some humans. Uh, they've helped and even rescued people. 
um, they have preferences, they have language, and they have a unique biology. So most people still don't realize that. And that's why I no. do. Well, I don't know all that's in your book, because quite frankly, Willie and I haven't read it yet, but I did want to talk a little bit about the biology of the Bigfoot. Now, you do mention that they have their own language. Um, they actually have several languages, don't they? I understand that there are like five different species of Bigfoot. Have uh, you heard that? I, I know that there's many. I know that there's, um, they will actually vary quite a bit. Some have, let's say, six fingers. Most of them have five. Uh, some have oh. four. Uh, the sizes will vary. The smallest ones seem to be uh, the ones they call the swamp apes down in Florida. Uh, we kind of have the medium size here in the Appalachian Mountains. And out west is where you get the biggest ones. Um, but their hair color will vary, their skin color, their eye color. Um, there's a lot of variations. I have never tried to put a number on the kind that there are. There's different names for them around the world, which may be what you're talking about. They're called Yeti and Sasquatch and mm -hmm. Bigfoot and a whole bunch of other names beyond that. Um, but as far as how many there, different variations there are, I honestly am not ready to make a conclusion on that one. Have you read anything by Kwani Lapsaritis? Yes, I've read both of his books. Now, you can't quiz me because I read them years ago. That's okay, but I do recall him saying that, you know, he does uh, telepathically communicate with them, and I believe it was, the number was five, that there are five different varieties, and there are even offshoots of those, but I think originally there were five different species that were here on Earth before man was introduced to the planet. Like I said, I hate to lock into things. I would hate to say with absolute certainty that there were five. No, but... No, I, I think that's dangerous, and I, I still think that's open up for, you know, for investigation. True. Uh, it's just indicative of the fact that they do have several languages. Their appearances are different. Uh, even their behaviors are different, and some are more aggressive and some are more docile. So it, we're not just looking at one single type of creature, are we? Uh, they're all variations of the same thing, and biologically... Uh, th this is uh, some of the wonderful work that uh, Dr. Melba Ketchum did. Yes. Uh, the first one to do the biological analysis of different kinds of, you know, specimens, skin, mm -hmm. things of that kind. And um, her research showed that the maternal side, the mother side of the Bigfoot uh, is human. And the, the mitochondrial side, DNA. And the, right, and the uh, male side, which you can only find in the nuclear DNA and which is much harder to get, um, is of an unknown species. They haven't been able to identify it with anything. So I refer to the Bigfoot as a distant cousin because we do share that human link. Yeah, I was just reading on uh, David Politis's site, and they were talking about that, that they had done, um, it was the Sasquatch DNA um, testing, and it said the samples came from a human hybrid source previously unknown to science. The study utilized the services of 12 independent laboratories, and the sequencing of the sequencing of the Sasquatch nuclear DNA uh, they found that there were no matches with any known organism. So they were wondering, you know, have we found a new species? They really don't know what it is a hybrid of. Um, I 
have concluded quite some time ago that uh, this planet must be an experimental place for um, uh, manipulation of uh, the chromosomes and the genes. Because, Genetic manipulation. I yeah. agree with you 100%, Mary. I, I think the same thing. I think we humans are also that. And I do too. And what's interesting with um, um, all the DNA um, tests that you can do now, 23andMe and Ancestry, uh -huh. uh, a lot of people have been very surprised to find out that they have some uh, Neanderthal in them. And that is yeah, what more common than people know. So that gives you a hint that, you know, who we are today is very much a mixture um, so it, it's not just the Bigfoot, it's, it's, I think, humans, period. Oh, I agree with you. I, I think it's a revelation to an awful lot of people. Um, what are some of the other biological differences that you covered? You did mention um, six and four fingers. Um, besides that, well, like I said, there can be variation uh, in eye color, um, the hair color, the skin color. Um, one of the best uh, people that I interviewed for the book is a woman named uh, Robin, and she has been in touch with Bigfoot since she was a small child. Right. And so she's interacted with many, many different Bigfoot. In fact, she is so good at uh, telepathically communicating with them that she was invited to Russia by Dr. Igor um, uh, uh, Bertsev, and I'm probably mess, messing up his name. I think it's Bertsev. <laughs> Bertsev, yeah. He was um, the head of the home, let's see, what do they call it? The International Center for Hominology in Siberia, Russia. And so she was known over there, and she went over there um, to um, explore a very, very active uh, Bigfoot, which they call Yeti. Um, area and a Bigfoot cave. And she is one of the ones that has seen this tremendous variation. She said something that all the faces look a little bit more human than I think people would expect. And she said some look very human. And we've heard the same thing from some hunters who have had a Bigfoot in their scope on their rifle. And, uh -huh. you know, obviously brings it real clear and they haven't been able to shoot because the face looks too human and it just doesn't seem right. Boy, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad some of them are waking up to their senses. Um, you know, there is that hair condition. Um, what is it, the hypertrichosis? That humans have hair on, hair on their face. It's, um, they used to be circus attractions. Oh, I know what you mean. Yes. Hypertrichosis, yes. I think. I don't know the right word. Um, I don't know, but I do know the condition. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so these people wind up having hair all over their bodies, hair on their faces, and who's not to say that these people aren't, you know, um, a hybrid themselves, maybe way back in their DNA, and it's just kind of a recessive trait, and sometimes it resurfaces. Uh, that's certainly worth considering. I mean, I can see where you would come up with that. Yeah. So getting back to Robin McRae, I found her stuff fascinating. Did you put any of her stories in your book, Mary? I did. And um, I think I've, I've got three in there that are all from Robin. I met her at a conference and was able to spend time and talk with her in person and interviewed her. Uh, and before I published the um, chapters on her, I did send them to make sure that I had everything correct. Um, 
one of the um, stories that I th I'll share that I think is just plain cute. Um, she had a pony, mm -hmm. and, and uh, she lived in a rural area, and there were woods around her place, and the pony was always getting out. Uh, he would get across the fences. He would knock them down. He would do all sorts of things. So she finally went and got um, a boat rope that was 250 feet long and anchored <laughs> him to one area so he wouldn't, you know, take off. And every night she would make sure he was anchored. And almost every morning she'd wake up and he was gone. <laughs> and he was in the woods. And not only did he disappear into the woods, but his feed container and his water container would be dragged into the woods also. And um, she eventually found uh, Bigfoot handprints on this Shetland pony. <laughs> the cute part was she found these little tiny baby Bigfoot butt prints on the pony. So the Bigfoot were using her Shetland pony apparently to entertain their children. Pony rides for Bigfoot, huh? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just... That will always stick in my head. Some stories will evaporate eventually, but I think that'll stick. That is adorable. Yeah, that's a cute one. How, how far out into the woods? How far out in the woods did they take the pony? Um, I don't think they had too much acreage, so I don't think it was a great, great distance. But it would be out of sight. She'd have to go into the woods to to find them. Yeah, and there's one photo that's included in the book where uh, the pony is in the woods. And his 250-foot-long rope is wrapped around a number of trees, but they're looped up above his head. And so yeah. if he was just running around the trees, they would the rope would have been lower. It wouldn't have been above his head. Yeah, I'm and, looking at that picture right now, and oh, the pony couldn't have done that. No, the pony couldn't. And also <laughs> the rope would be tied in knots when they would relocate him. Oh, and, that's funny. Uh, and I, also, the food and the water would be moved along with the pony, right? That's correct. That's correct. So they took good care of the pony, and apparently the pony must have enjoyed it. <laughs> and they had a sense of humor. Uh, I don't know if it's humor or not. I think they were just trying to make sure that the Bigfoot, uh, the pony had everything he needed. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, what about the story, now this is Robin McRae again, that when she came back from Siberia, she started having experiences and she saw her mother Bigfoot that she said was between nine and a half and ten feet tall, and she was carrying a baby with her? That's correct. And the, it's an interesting sequence because when she went to Siberia uh, and went into this very large Bigfoot cave, uh, and she was not alone, there was a group of people. And within the cave, it was like like a little shelter or cave within a cave. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, the Bigfoot communicated with her and told her that is where their females went to, to have babies or to give birth. And she described it as being like uh, six and a half by five and a half feet in, you right. know, just guessing off the top of her head. But after she told me that, I was able to get a photo of Dr. I'll just call him Igor. Dr. Igor in this birthing nest and um, it looks much larger than that because he's in it and you can see the nest going beyond him so it's clearly more than six and a half by five and a half feet but she had was exposed to this uh, birthing nest and the explanation of how the birthing was done it was after that on her own land where she has already had contact with bigfoot but 
the new experience was that uh, this uh, Bigfoot mother showed up at the tree line on her property. And at first she thought it was a human walking and then she went out there. And you mentioned that it was um, like six and a half feet tall. I mean, nine and a half feet tall. Right. And the reason she was able to do that is she mentally made a note of where the mama Bigfoot's head uh, measured on a, on a tree. Mm-hmm. And went back later and measured it. So that wasn't just a, a guess at the size. She actually went back and measured. Yeah. Uh, that is another really cute story. And um, it's sort of like she was taken through a sequence. So she was introduced to the baby after she'd been to Siberia and was introduced to the birthing cave. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so this was really a special experience. And uh, in the book, I give... Uh, like statistics, I did a, um, a ratio of a human mother to a newborn infant, and then the Bigfoot to the size of her baby, which was like I think two and a half, two and a half feet tall, mm-hmm. would have been the equivalent of a brand new, um, maybe even smaller than a brand new human um, baby. And this little guy, um, she'd set him down, and he'd climb up about two and a half, three feet up a tree. And climb down and then go to the next one, climb up and climb down. And the mother was always there right behind the little one to make sure he was okay. And when he <laughs> got too far down the line of trees, she picked him up and brought him back and he started the game over again. So uh, it's, um, you know, just the gentle side of the Bigfoot that you just don't hear about. And, you know, when she was in that cave, I was thinking to myself, how on earth did she de- determine that it was a birthing cave? And then she said that she was doing the mind speak with the Bigfoot. And I, should, there... explain, I should explain that to your listeners, because um, we all are familiar with the term telepathy. But within uh-huh. the Bigfoot circles, they call it mind speak. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing. Yes, yes. So were there any Bigfoots in the cave or was she just soliciting information and waiting for a response mentally from the Bigfoot? I mean, we're in Siberia now. We're in Siberia, yeah. Um, Actually, the Irish get credit for this whole thing happening. There's something, I think it's called the um, uh, Paddy Paddy Power. Anyhow, it's in the book and I have it correct. Uh, there is a group that makes bets. And so they made a wager that they would pay 100 pounds for a one-pound one bet for anybody who could give them proof of a Yeti or a Bigfoot. And so Dr. Igor took them up on it. And I think they ended up having about 30 people uh, going on this exploration of this big cave. So there were a lot of witnesses to it. And there were, um, I have one photo in the book where you can see uh, the big footprint in the kind of soft um, soil inside. Yes. And uh, so I don't know where I'm going with this, but. Uh, well, I was wondering about when she got the information that it was a birthing cave, was there a Bigfoot in the cave or was she no, just. Oh, no, no, no. Was, okay. They'd been there recently that you could see the fresh footprint. Um and she was telepathically communicating with the Bigfoot at okay. that point. And that's how she learned that that was where their, um, their birthing was often done. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So when she encountered them in her backyard, 
um, the mother started talking to her telepathically and allowed her to come what between 25 to 30 feet with from distance from the baby. Right, and and then she made it clear she couldn't come any closer. Right, and that is as far as she can go. And then, then what happened, Mary? <laughs> she kind of like vanished. She vanished. She just uh, closed and herself I, I, and disappeared. And apparently this is a talent they seem to have. Either That's that right. or they know how to blend in with the um, surroundings. Yeah. There's supposed to be technology out that allows a human being to do that. And I think it has something to do with uh, electronics, but it can be done. I've seen a picture of someone in camouflage, uh, camo uh, uniforms or whatever, being cloaked and they're blending right into the woods. Right. And I'm talking beyond the, the uniform itself. That you think you're looking at a tree type thing. But very fascinating. It's fascinating that they know how to do that. Uh, yeah, and I think there's a lot more to be learned about that. Uh, oh, you know, I do too. You seem to only, you know, be touching on, on their abilities. Yeah. How is it that they can become interdimensional like that? Um, I don't know. If I ever get a really good answer for that, I definitely <laughs> will put it on the website. I would love to know what's behind it. Just how on earth did they do that? I mean, look at different animals that can, squid, for instance, they can change the color of their body and blend in with the environment. Chameleons. It. I just find that whole um, dynamic very interesting that they know how to do that. And they sense, you know, people, uh, some people interact with the Bigfoot and some never will. And it has very much to do with the attitude, the human <laughs> and their attitude and their whole, you know, philosophy and vibration that they're sending out. Um, yeah. And if people come, you know, with subdued fears or they're too scientifically investigating, or if they have a gun for sure, the Bigfoot don't want anything to do with them. Um, the people that I have talked to have all been kind of they're they're educated, but they all are like living the simple life. They're all living mm -hmm. close to the land. And they're the ones that have had the um, most interactions with the Bigfoot. And I swear, you know, you can hardly blame them for being aggressive if they want to protect themselves and their children and their families when right. the hunters they come will, around. They will go out of their way to avoid hurting humans in most circumstances. Uh, over and over again, I've heard about um, them throwing stones toward humans but they don't hit them. Right. What they're trying to do is to scare you away. And yeah. a lot of times the howls and stuff are to scare you away. Um, mm -hmm. They just assume, for the most part, they don't want anything to do with most humans. And, you know, there's another uh, technique I've heard that they have, and that's they can instill some kind of fear in you if you're coming in the woods and they don't want you to get any closer, that they can make you fearful as if... Uh, they make you feel that there's negativity or danger out there. That's my understanding, too. But at the same yes. time, even though I've written this book, even though I've interviewed a lot of people with the Bigfoot and I've seen their caves and I've seen their footprints, um, if one suddenly came through my office door right now, um, my heart would be pounding like crazy. They're big. Yeah, they're big. I mean, it, it would be very startling. So I think yes. uh, people are crazy to think they wouldn't have some guttural reaction uh, to something so phenomenal appearing in their life.
Yeah, I think they would have to be broken in a little bit, a little bit at a time if something like a Bigfoot came on the property just a little bit over a course of a summer or something. You could acclimate yourself to the idea of their existence. Uh, there was a couple that um, they had been studying Bigfoot. They really wanted to make contact with them. And so they would go out camping um, really on the remote areas of the Smoky Mountain National Park where you don't see the tourists. It would be like on the well, I'll just say the far side, side of sides of it. And uh, they were camping one night, and they were actually meditating and trying to communicate with the Bigfoot. And they heard the Bigfoot all around them. Wow. Uh, in many different ways. But the Bigfoot, in their mind speak, told them that they didn't want to appear because they didn't want to make the couple afraid. Wow. But and and somehow just knowing that they're they're there and knowing a lot about the bigfoot to start with it's not so fearful but they they weren't they didn't think the humans were ready to actually see them oh, they might be right yeah yeah they were probably too huge i have my own quick experience about this very strange feeling in the woods there was a, a place in new hampshire where you could go swimming. It was a river and it was in the woods. It was on an old logging road. So a friend and I, we went there and we happened to be the only people there. And then I, I was out outside of the car and I got this terrible sense of evil. Mm. I can't explain. It was like claustrophobic evil. I jumped back into the car and I said to my friend, we've got to get out of here. And he turned, he looked at me and he said, I know it. I feel it, too. And he put the car in gear, and we were out of there. I swear that's what it was. Now, thinking back on it. It could be. Could mm. be. Or it could also be, you were, You know, there are some areas where the negativity is um, palatable, and it may have nothing to do with Bigfoot, but it could be either one. Yeah, like I it said, could be one. We all have to be careful not to jump to conclusions. Um, because there can sometimes be more than one answer. Sure. I, in retrospect, I just think that there's a high likelihood that that might have been it because it was in the middle of the woods, yep. and we were the only ones there. Um, how about your meeting with Rivette Hill? Um, that was real interesting because um, we went out to her property, and when I say we, I'm talking about Evelyn Gordon. She and I started the website in 2008. And we went out there because she'd been find these, finding these giant uh, spearheads on her property. I mean, bigger than you would think a human could use. And uh, uh, when we were out there, uh, it just looked like the terrain that we'd seen where other Bigfoot were. And I brought it to her attention. I said, do you have any Bigfoot? Because this is, this is typical of the land that they like. And she looked kind of startled. <laughs> She hadn't thought about it. And she said, oh. And she had had a dream at one point about a Bigfoot, like out of the blue. And the next day, she and her husband and two kids went out hiking in the woods, and they were crossing a creek, and there was a giant footprint. Um, so she's had a number of things where her dreams seemed to give her a clue as to something that might happen. Um, oh. There was a, um, since then she's become much more alert to it. And one of the things that happened was uh, she raises um, herbs and stuff in this forest land. She has a, mm -hmm. quite a number of acres. And 
she was out there checking on her plants late one afternoon. The next morning she got up after having another dream about a Bigfoot and there was one of those tent structures that had been formed overnight on her property uh, that's associated with the Bigfoot. It's, they, it's sort of like having the skeleton of a, of a tent made out mm -hmm. of branches. And above that, the saplings uh, made, were arched over uh, this tent-like structure. All this ho happened overnight, so there was no way that it could be easily explained away. Was she aware that Bigfoot does do these trail-type markings or whatever? Was she aware of the correlation? Um, I think that happened in a gap of time. So I think she had started to do some reading um, be, you know, between the time we first suggested the idea and the yeah. time the tent was created. So I don't think it hit her totally out of the blue because her curiosity had gotten her you know, into the books and into the videos. Did it ever cross your mind that just maybe, because this is what I might have wondered too, those spearheads, I might have thought that they would have belonged to giants, the human giants they talk about. Uh, I still about. think that. I still think that because. Uh, Do you? At one, yeah, at one time at the university that's here in this area, it's Western Carolina University, according to uh, two anthropology students that I got to know in the past, Ooh. they said that they had two giant skeletons in their forensic uh, storage area and that they were giant size and had six toes. Uh, sadly, since then, I ran into another anthropology student who said that I think, and I'm not sure I got the date, I don't know the date for sure, but around 2017, uh, she said that they sent all their um, skeletons and also the skeletons of the little people. And I think you may know that I did a book on the Cherokee little people. And yes. all of that was sent off to the Smithsonian. No. Really, really regrettable because there had been uh, several books now that have explained how uh, the Smithsonian gets these kinds of things that don't and fit into them. our teeth. They don't lose them. They hide them off someplace. Yeah. Never that, that, the public. That's Never the, the public, public explanation. Yeah. So yeah. that's where it went. I don't know if we'll ever see that stuff again. But that was at least confirmation from um, three different sources that giant skeletons had been found in this area. Think, Mary, that there's any connection be between that and Bigfoot? Any correlation? Uh, I, from from I what you've researched. I don't know, but like we were associating the um, spearheads with the giants. Uh, the Bigfoot don't go around using tools in any major way, and they certainly don't create spearheads as weapons. So no. no. Uh, that doesn't, that fits stories of the giants, but it doesn't seem to fit stories of the Bigfoot. Yeah. So there I think was, we're okay. sitting here in North Carolina in the mountains with all sorts of mysteries. We have evidence of the giants, of the little people, of the Bigfoot. And of course, then we get into things like um, the underground bases here in the mountains. So, mm -hmm. um, and we have UFOs. So it's an active, active place. You know, I was looking at a couple of YouTubes. I was watching um, uh, Bertsev's um, 
video clip as well as I looked around for a couple of other Bigfoot clips. And there was a guy from Oklahoma and he said he had been investigating Bigfoot kind of either in the woods or woods that were his property. But he went out there and he found sort of like a little eating area that had a pile of walnuts that still had the husks on them and um, some um, shells. And he found his own hatchet that apparently had been in his barn. And he said, well, here's my hatchet that I didn't even know was missing. So they were using that to crack open the shells. So they, apparently they know how to use tools, but they just don't make them. At least they're not known for making them. They're, they're not known for making tools. No. Now they might uh, improvise. Yeah. And, and that the hatchet worked well, evidently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they had a basket of uh, unhusked walnuts. Um, there's a story in there, too, on your website, especially. I don't know if it's in your book or not, about Casey Hathaway, the three-year-old that disappeared was missing for a few days? Uh, yeah, everybody, and well, I think it made the national news. I know it was certainly big news in North Carolina. Um, let me get my notes on that so I make sure I do it right. Um, oh, shoot. You guys talk for a second. Well, you know, actually, oh. we're just about at the bottom of the hour, so. Oh, okay. Why, oh, yeah. don't, why don't we just go ahead and take a break then? Okay, that'll work. Okay, good. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes, so don't go away. Supernatural Magazine, one of the UK's top paranormal magazines, provides support to Spirit Radio, the paranormal experience. It is the magazine's goal to bring every aspect of supernatural news and research from around the world under one roof to create a universal platform for all those interested in the supernatural. More information is available at supernaturalmagazine.com. And you are listening to Spirit Radio, the Paranormal Experience on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. Granite Sky is proud to serve the Granite State, New England, and the world via the Internet with rock-solid support and personal services. There are many aspects to ufology, and the experiencer is too often overlooked. At Granite Sky, their focus is on people, not proof. Granite Sky focuses on supporting those who have had extraterrestrial encounters and abduction experiences. We believe no one should have to face these experiences alone. If you've been visited, visit them at www.granitesky.org. back to Spirit Radio, the Paranormal Experience on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. And tonight we have uh, Mary Joyce. We're talking all things Bigfoot. So welcome back, Mary. Thank you. Welcome back, Mary. Okay, so when we left, we were, um, we wanted to talk about the three-year-old child. His name was Casey Hathaway, and he disappeared one day, January 22nd in 2019, this year. So uh, if you want to pick that up, Mary? 
I will, I will. That got, uh, I think, complete national attention. It certainly got a lot of attention here in North Carolina. It was on the news a lot. And the little guy was out in January in the cold for um, uh, three days and two nights, and he just had on a relatively light jacket, and he was lost. And when they found him, he said that, um, I'm not quoting him now, but basically he was telling him that this bear took care of him. Now, a little three-year-old is not going to know the word Bigfoot. And mm -hmm. so to call it a bear makes some kind of sense. But it's not logical that it would have been a bear. First of all, it's hibernation um, time for um, the big, you know, for the bear in January. Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, um, I, I checked on some information from um, a bear um, authority from, I think it was the University of Montana, and he said bears have never been known to be that way or to help people. That's just foreign to them completely. So yeah. that kind of ruled it out. And um, then I started doing some research, and I found that uh, the Bigfoot Field Research Organization, which is kind of known as BPRO, um, had uh, calculated uh, Bigfoot sightings, and they had them done by uh, counties. And the counties around the area where this little boy was lost uh, all had uh, Bigfoot uh, sighting reports. Wow. So put all that together and you have to think, hey, it's much more likely that it was a Bigfoot. And Bigfoot are known for sometimes helping people in, in distress. That's amazing. So this little kid, he was old enough to talk. What else did he have to say? I don't think he had a whole lot to say, except uh, he said he hung out with a, a bear for two days. And well, did they, they go to a cave or something? He was stuck in a, in a like a bramble and couldn't get out of it. So oh. he can't get out, and that's the reason he probably couldn't get back to where he needed to be. And so the, I'll say the Bigfoot, was there uh, trying to take care of him as best as he could, is what I can piece together. But he was um, entrenched in this bramble. So he did not walk back to his parents' yard, or that was his so, story, that he was okay? Uh, so he was just found what, by other people? Yeah, they eventually found him, and that's where they found him. And they were so amazed that he was in fine shape. And he should have been absolutely freezing to death. It and, almost sounds like he had been released, and he kind of got stuck there in the brambles. Correct. So... Um, but you had mentioned earlier about another story that I do have in the book, and it's much too long to tell, um, but it's basically about a man in the Civil War, and he wrote um, sort of a, a legacy letter for his family. Uh, it was written on the old paper of that time. It was written in the old script of that time, and one of the, uh, a researcher who was an author uh, was able to get um, his hands on this original letter. And then somebody tra uh, turned it into like a little video. And it's just basically, it's pleasant. It's ple it, it, the letter is read as you're kind of strolling through the woods in the area where, uh, you know, the Civil War would have been fought. Mm -hmm. uh, but this letter is quite intriguing. And I actually sat at my computer and transcribed the video audio, which is all I could get of it. 
and, wow. and, and then put it in into my book because I thought it was really that good. And this man had been um, mortally wounded, really, uh, during a battle of the Civil War and, um, you know, would have died except these forest people showed up. Now, I have to point out that the terms uh, Bigfoot and Sasquatch did not exist at the time of the Civil War. So in his letter, he talks about the forest people. He describes them as being huge, and they uh, dragged, them off, dragged him off to a cave. And literally, a, a small clan of Bigfoot took care of him. And uh, they, you know, um, one of the female Bigfoot um, actually was, I assume it was herbs, was chewing something in her mouth. And then she packed his wounds with this. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it apparently helped heal it. Um, he was in one part of the cave, and because he couldn't move, as uh, these are my words, not his, uh, he was stinking up his part of the cave. And one day, uh, one of the Bigfoot came in with a handful of white powder and spread it all over the area. And in his letter, he talked about that these forest people knew about lime, and lime is used to, you know, get rid of the odors and the smells. Um, when he finally began to get uh, well enough that he could try to stand, uh, one of the big male Bigfoot helped him up. Um, when he was trying to learn to walk, there were roots coming down from the top of the cave, and he used those to get his balance uh, to try to build up his strength so he could walk again. And there's a whole lot to the story. And um, um, uh, when he got well enough, um, they pointed to a path, they took him out of the cave and pointed them to a path that would take them back to where uh, the humans were. Wow. But, but the story, well, it's, the letter is well written and uh, it was just too good not to share it. Oh, I did listen to that. It was just riveting what happened to him. Didn't, um, she used a polster, a poultice, 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 isn't that the word? Um, did the Native Americans do that? Oh, so, yeah. so that would follow suit. That makes sense. And the other thing is too, wasn't he like out cold for a while? Oh yeah, he was. He was in and out of consciousness for some. Yeah, and he woke up to find them there taking care of him. Wow, well, that he, was quite. Uh, a... He remembered them. He, he described, I think, the big legs, and he, uh, he, because he remembered them taking him off the battlefield. But he would go in and out of um, uh, a coma, and uh, so a lot of things were in bits and pieces. Um, Mary, did he mention anything about fire? Do they use fire? I the only thing I know about a fire story is um, one man uh, was at his campfire, and the campfire was going down to just embers, and he was away from the campfire, so. There was a Bigfoot that came, and he picked up a stick, the, the Bigfoot did. It mm -hmm. had embers burning, on, and it was burning, and he was whirling it around, you know, like you would entertain yourself with uh, the fire in the night. Oh. So that's the only story where there was any indication they, you know, would have anything to do with fire. But that's not using it for any kind of... Uh, you know, warmth, sort of warmth, yeah. Or anything like that. That was more a novelty to the appearance. Yeah, just toying with fire, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, how and odd. Is, so if you've ever been around a campfire at night and you take one of those embers and you whirl it around, it's like watching a, a miniature um, firework. So I can understand why it would be entertaining. Yeah, so it makes you wonder, how on earth do they stay warm in the winter? Um, at one point when I lived uh, in the cold, cord, cold north, I <laughs> had a, um, a shearling coat. Mm-hmm. Then you, that, that's when I realized how thick the skin and the fur is on animals. And uh, they stay warm without putting on a coat. And I think the Bigfoot must be somewhat similar. But the only the only thing that kind of doesn't support that is the fact that they've got so many human genes. Um, somehow or another, they can exist in cold weather and not have any mittens. So how mm. they do it, I do not know, but it's yeah. certainly the case. And yeah. there's, there's videos. Um, there's one that I, uh, I I posted years ago now on the website, and it's uh, showing... The Bigfoot in the snow, I think it was out in Yellowstone, and they're tracking, um, they're hunting a, a buffalo or a bison. Mm-hmm. And you know it's cold in the wintertime in Wyoming when there's snow all over the place. Mm. And they don't seem to be phased by it. So there's something in their biology that uh, equips them for dealing with the cold. Maybe they just have a high metabolic rate. Who knows? I do not know. know. Of course, I'm just asking your opinion from, you know, what you've read and what you've researched. So I was just kind of curious because, you know, the Native Americans, they don't um, swath their babies up when they're young. They try to get them used to the cold because you often see pictures of them. They have a, a couple of skins on. And that's it, you know, like deer skins. And they really have basically not a whole lot of heavy clothing on. Mm-hmm. So they are very resistant to the cold. I would imagine maybe the Bigfoot is the same way. That's it seems your, your guess makes sense. Yeah, it seems to be. Um, have you got any other stories that you'd like to elaborate on? Uh, well, I know there's one that you were curious about, and it's a very involved one, so I can only kind of touch on it. Okay. There, I originally I just called it the Valley of the Bigfoot, <laughs> and um, I learned about this story through a hairdresser, and she said that one of her customers um, uh, would tell her bits and pieces about what she thought to be Bigfoot on her property, and it disturbed her, and the uh, the gal who owns the salon it knows me. And so she was trying to get that woman to tell her story or to let me see the property. And it took months before the woman was willing to do that. And her property was in a small bowl-shaped valley uh, up on the high ridges. And to get there, first of all, you take a, a dirt road across a ridge, and then you go down at least a mile on a single-lane road that goes between two ridges following a creek. And then when you get to the end of it, there's this little valley and there's two houses and a barn and a pond. And uh, the woman said that as long as she had lived there, she sometimes felt like something in the woods was looking at her, but she never saw anything. But everything changed when they were um, trying to repair uh, the pond. And so the pond was created by putting a dam on the creek. Somebody was out there with a jackhammer in part of this repair process. 
and suddenly it went, the jackhammer went right through the, the rock and suddenly all the water in the pond is disappearing down this hole. And um, after that, everything with the Bigfoot got really bad for a while. And in hindsight, uh, both the owner and myself and some other people who've been involved in this uh, feel like uh, they had accidentally flooded uh, the cave where the Bigfoot were living and they were pissed. And they started off by, um, you, you know, exploring and doing all sorts of stuff with their vehicles. From And I'm just going to hit on stuff. I'm not going to give you the details. Sure. There's lots of pictures to go with this in the book, you know, so it's not just words. Um, from exploring and, and invading the vehicles, they then went to um, try to get into the, the smaller of the two. I'll just call it the small house. And I've got pictures of the of their handprints on the door where they're trying to get in. And they got in that house. Um, and there's a number of stories that I tell about what they did in that house. And it's like they jacked up their uh, invasion of the property. First the cars, then the little house, and then the big house. And in the big house, surprisingly, they didn't disturb the living room on the main floor, but they did you know what, all over the upstairs where the bedrooms were. Oh, no. And um, it, it became, it, be, it looked like it became a place where the young big, Bigfoot um, entertained themselves because they were taking um, magic markers and things like that and, and, and scribbling on the wall. And the re one of the reasons we think um, it was the little thing is because everything was down below the light switch. And mm -hmm. a, a big Bigfoot wouldn't crouch down like that, I don't know, to do those kind of little scribbles. And um, also, they had seen, um, um, she called it the white alien dude, carrying two what she assumed were baby Bigfoot. So we know from that and from the different size handprints on the vehicles that there were different ages of Bigfoot uh, on that property. And so we have pictures of the writings they did on the wall. Uh, we have pictures of the claw marks uh, where they were trying to open a locked door. And <laughs> what they did was they put their hands underneath the door where the crack was. And then you can see all the scratch marks where they're trying to pull the door open. <laughs> um, now the interesting twist, it went from all this kind of uh, violent behavior or aggressive behavior and then I was sitting on the porch of the big house with the owner of the property and two other people. And the woman who owns the property, uh, we called her Samantha, um, she kind of like apologized out loud to us that she was so sorry that she had figured out that destroying the pond had obviously done damage to uh, where the Bigfoot were living. And she never intended for that to happen. She felt badly about it. She went on and on like this. Well, before we left that day, at the front door, there was a, it looked like a piece of burlap that had been kind of shaped into a makeshift basket. And if I remember correctly, there were three very old coins and something else that was kind of a copper color left at the door like a gift. And after that, the uh, uh, invasive behavior stopped. Oh my gosh. So we went so, went full circle with that. And and like I said, there's 
pictures of the handprints and where that you can see where they really were struggling to uh, open the doors to the homes and um, it, and all the artwork they were doing and they tore up the bathroom and played with the toothpaste oh. and uh, took off the bath of the back of the toilet and um, oh. uh, we all were very grateful they didn't know what to do with the toilet um, <laughs> so that's the um, the highlights of, of Valley of the Bigfoot story. So things settled down after the peace offering. Uh, they did. They quit being so aggressive. So did these people move back into the house? Well, um, they had moved out, and then they, oh, they did. Come at well, and the, when it was really bad, and uh, the woman would go back daily to check the property, and she for a while took her bodyguard with her just to be sure everything was okay. Um, eventually, she did have to move up the property. It had nothing to do with the Bigfoot. It had to do with this was basically part of a family estate mm -hmm. and the human conflicts that sometimes go along with that. So right. that, that had nothing to do, you know, I think she was prepared to stay there. Well, have the new tenants experienced anything or is it just life as usual? Um, I did check out the property. I didn't see it. It, it didn't look like anybody was living in the property now. Hmm. So maybe they went in there and got scared off. I have no idea. But uh, I did drive down there once and since then and, you know, everything's overgrown. And, um, oh, it's, really? It's really sad because it is actually a very beautiful piece of property. Oh, I bet it is. It sounds gorgeous. Um, did you, you didn't go alone, did you, Mary? <laughs> uh, no, um, <laughs> I will share one of my own experiences and it happened. Uh, oh, not please. Not too far from where this this uh, Valley of the Bigfoot happened, maybe a ridge or two away from there. And the man who um, owned the property um, also served as uh, the woman's bodyguard when things were really bad. Well, he lives, um, he has land that again is in the remote re uh, ridges and it's a single lane road. And so he took me in his truck, we parked it and then he led me into the woods about a half mile, maybe. And he had a machete oh. so that it, so he could cut a path where it was necessary. Mm -hmm. And he was taking me to uh, a place where um, there were Bigfoot caves. And what I found personally interesting was when we first began to walk into that forest land, uh, we heard this sound that I can only describe as a bird sound that didn't sound like a bird. And then <laughs> off in the direction that we were headed, where the caves were, there was a reply, another bird sound that wasn't like a bird sound. And then everything went silent. And all I could think of was it was one Bigfoot warning the rest of them that there were two blankety blank humans headed their direction. <laughs> um, so, I did get to, and I have photos of the caves that I, I got to see there. Uh, the biggest one was um, probably eight eight feet across and about five feet tall. Um, I was not brave enough to go in the cave, but um, I got fairly close, and I could not see the back of the cave, so it was uh, a pretty good size one. But you got up really close to it. Yeah, and my pictures are, I've included those in the book. Oh, wonderful. So do you have, um, 
well, you've got links on your site to a lot of these things. And I think that uh, the Civil War soldier letter is really important too. I'm glad you included that in the book. That alone would be worth buying it. And plus the, the photography. Well, what happened fantastic. was we've been investigating Bigfoot stories since 2009, which is like at least 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And they are spread out over those years and nobody can just go and find them all. So what I did was I took the ones that I thought were uh, the most important and pulled them out and, and uh, fixed them up so they could be in uh, a book form. Um, so really the, the uh, website was the uh, impetus for this book happening. Uh, I didn't intend to write the book, but we just were getting so much information um, that I just had to put it together in a, in a way that people could, um, you know, have it in one place because it's hard yeah. otherwise. Um, and the other reason I did the book was because I was sick and tired of just hearing about these big footprints and their howling and their banging and their rock. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just kept, everything I was learning showed that there was so much more to the Bigfoot. And I just felt it was important to start getting that message out. And, you know, there's plenty to prove that they exist. So you know, I, it's it. wonderful that you've archived all of this information for future generations. Um, I, I, think hope people, I hope other people uh, start to save their stories, too. Uh, yes. Um, why do you suppose that there's just in the last 10 years, I've noticed how interest in the Bigfoot has really accelerated. Why do you suppose that is? Do you think they're interacting more or that people are more willing to share their experiences? Um, I, I can honestly say in the last three years, it has been very noticeable to me. Um, there was, a, I went to uh, the Bigfoot uh, conference down in Clayton, Georgia, mm -hmm. and I was surprised at how many people were there. It, you know, it, there were a lot. So I think the interest is growing for several reasons. Um, one, has to do with the kind of stories that are on TV. I don't necessarily like them all. Uh, I think hunting for Bigfoot is absolutely the wrong way to go about it. And yeah. you, I, I, I could do a little dissertation on that. But nevertheless, it's made people more curious about the Bigfoot and more willing to talk about it because of those shows, even though I, I think they're off base in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, Agreed. So, but it certainly, it, you know, created interest. And a lot of people have had experiences. Um, people are always afraid to be the odd guy. And so now they're feeling a little bit more okay about sharing their experiences. Some people have Bigfoot stories that go back many, many years, and they just didn't want to talk about them for fear they would be ridiculed. So there's a little bit less of the ridicule and so people feel freer to talk. I think it's a combination of those things. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's surfacing. Um, Mary, would you give us your information about your website and where to find the book? I will. The, uh, the website, I'll say it and then I'll clarify it. It's skyshipsovercashers.com. And the only thing confusing about it is the word cashers. Cashers is a mountaintop town around here. It's where we first began to see so many UFO sightings. 
And when we started the website, we thought that was going to be our focus. Well, it's grown way beyond that. So if I were to do it today, I would name it something else. But it's Sky Discover <laughs> Cashers. Cashers is spelled just like a cashier at the grocery store. SkyShipsOverCashers.com. And um, we do have a search bar. So you can type in things and you can get some of these things to come up. But it's just a Google uh, search bar. And there's some limitations to it. Uh, we do have major categories on the home page. Uh, so on the right, we have the most, I'll say the, the 20 most recent postings. And on the left, we have categories. And there's one whole category devoted to uh, ETs and Bigfoot. Uh, and then in Editor's Corner, uh, if you scroll way down to the bottom, there's a summary about each one of my books. Um, and they're all available through Amazon. Great. And I think it's important for people to know there's things about UFOs, things about uh, deep underground military bases, a lot of anomalous things, a lot of whistleblower information. It's a wonderful site. It's full of information. Uh, that's the old newspaper reporter in me. The curiosity never dies. <laughs> and if I, just, I don't like to just keep doing the same thing. And there's so many things to explore and learn about. It's an excellent resource. And, you know, you got so many great things going on down in your area, Bigfoots and UFOs and all that. What about uh, ghost, ghost stories? You we've, had a, we've had a few um, stories that we posted, not a whole lot. Uh, the one that's coming to mind right now is um, I did one about a man, and it's a number of years ago, cannot remember his name right now, but he is uh, psychic. And he could like see the trapped spirits like on a Civil War battlefield. And he, his whole purpose was to communicate with them and really free them from being trapped ah. on the earth plane. And so his whole goal is to get them to go toward the light and not be stuck in the place where they were killed. Uh, we did that one. Uh, we've done a few where people have just seen a ghost and we have a, a picture of a ghost like going across the road. We do not focus on that a whole lot. I actually feel sorry for ghosts. I think they're troubled. Um, I think they're stuck. Uh, I think they need to move on. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Well, we, we still have to go, Willie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. I gotta go down that, that area one of these days. Yeah, there's just a lot happening down there. Yeah, but hey, you know what? We're, we're just about out of time here. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk with both of you, and I appreciate the invitation to come on, on your show. Well, that's ditto, Mary. Thank you so much, because I know it takes a chunk of time. Yes, we appreciate you coming on, Mary. We're always, always happy to talk to you. And keep me posted, whatever you guys do. We absolutely will. Okay. Thank, will. You, thank you so much, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. You take care. Okay. Oh, you All too. Right. Okay. Good thank night. Thank you, Mary. And so, hey, Spirit Radio, the Paranormal Experience on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. And everyone, thank you for listening. You have a great evening. You have been listening to Spirit Radio, the Paranormal Experience, with your hosts, Willie Hassel and Lynn Nickerson, on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. Granite Sky is proud to serve the Granite State, New England, and the world via the Internet, with rock-solid support and personal services. There are many aspects to ufology, and the experiencer is too often overlooked. 
At Granite Sky, their focus is on people, not proof. Granite Sky focuses on supporting those who have had extraterrestrial encounters and abduction experiences. We believe no one should have to face these experiences alone. If you've been visited, visit them at www.granitesky.org.